You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians. That, uh, if you're visiting here, in fact, if you're new to church at all, it's a book of the Bible. It's a letter from Paul to a church in Greece uh, many years ago, and it's one that is God's Word to us today as well. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians, and we're at the very last verse on page 1167 of the Pew Bible. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, We have been looking at this for many weeks. I think it's 54 sermons I've done on this. Who's counting? Uh, And even looking at this last verse, I was tempted to turn it into nine sermons, but I decided not to. Uh, We began by looking at this. Uh, I had the kind of title of what God has to say to the church in Scotland, and it's very clearly also been what God has to say to us as a church. And I have to say, at times it has been incredibly painful. The situation in the church in Corinth is very similar to the situation that we face. And uh, it's also been incredibly encouraging. I'm going to miss studying this every single uh, week. I think that the background to what we look at just now, and this, what we look at at the end here, is just so crucial. The words are so familiar that we don't think about them very much, but they are absolutely wonderful. And here's why. When we look at the state of the nation, I think if you've got eyes, if you can see, if you can hear, if you can understand, things are not great. There's so much to discourage, especially a Christian, when we see what's happening to our country. When you look at the state of the church, sometimes, I'll I'll speak personally, for me, it is shattering. It is overwhelming. I've never had a year in which so many church leaders, so many people have come and sought I don't know. It's not even advice. They're just in despair. And within churches, you go on and you realize just how the Bible's teaching about human sinfulness is true. Some of us will look at the state of our own families and maybe feel the same thing. So much brokenness. And then I think probably most shattering for all of us, because we could look at all of these things and feel an immense sorrow and an immense oppression and an immense sadness, but it can very easily become an immense self-righteousness. But when we look at the state of our own hearts, then it is beyond bearing. When the Holy Spirit works in our lives and shows us who and what we are, yes, fearfully and wonderfully made, Yes, supremely talented and gifted in lots of ways, but within every one of us, there is a heart of darkness that we do not know really what we are capable of until God shows us or until we do it. And it's in the light of that that Paul comes to this church 
and gives this blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, he's saying it to a church. This is fascinating. He's not saying this to super church. He's not saying this to a church which is shot through with people who are all wonderful and who are all getting on great. He's saying it to a church in which there's been, and probably still is, sexual immorality, where there's been greed and selfishness, where there has been petty rivalry and party spirit, where the leadership has been divided amongst itself. And he comes to that church, and he finishes his letter by saying, may God's grace, love, and fellowship be with you. And we're going to look at those and see that that is God's Word to us today. And what I was trying to say to the children is what I will say to you. I, you cannot know anything better than what you will hear this morning. And I pray that you will know it. I pray that you will have ears uh, to hear this, by the way, is the only place in the New Testament where the whole Trinity is mentioned explicitly in such a blessing. Also, let me say this, that this is not saying that grace is exclusive to Christ or love to, to God the Father or fellowship to the Spirit. We know that Christ loves. We've just, you just read about that even in this letter. It's not saying that, but it's talking not about I don't even think it's talking about relationships within the Trinity. It's talking about something. You're not the order. Christ, Father, Spirit. Why? Why not Father, Son, Spirit? Why Christ, Father, Spirit? Because, and I think this is right, one man says that this is describing our experience of God. We come to Christ first. We encounter God through Christ and then we receive His Spirit. We grow in grace. We grow in the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. So let's look at these, and I'm going to concentrate particularly on the first one, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though the others. And I want to mention seven principles of grace. Um, And one of the reasons here is as well, I'll confess this. I've got really fed up with the word grace because I've got fed up with Christians talking about grace without understanding it and using it as an excuse for sin. And by Christians often as well using the word grace for gracious and using the word gracious to mean nice. This verse is not saying, may the niceness of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's saying, may the grace. And if we, I mean, I can't in one sermon, say everything about the grace of Christ. But let me just list seven things that are crucial for us as a church and as families and as individuals. Firstly, simply this. Grace is our foundation. Grace is the basis of the church. We come into being by grace. We are born again by grace. We are sustained by grace. Paul, at the beginning of this letter, says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes a church a church? It's that God in His grace calls people to Himself. It's not the denomination. It's not that you like the building. It's not that you like the pastor. It's not, I think I'll go along to this church because I need something. 
because you won't become part of the church with that attitude. That's many, uh, a reason many people come. It's maybe why you're here. But to really belong to the church, you need to be called to belong to God. And it is the grace of Jesus that calls you. Jesus doesn't need you. Jesus can easily do without you. It is not your unique abilities, your special talents. It is most certainly not your noted saintliness. Grace calls the most unworthy of people. And that is the foundation and that is the basis of the church. And because of that, grace reaches people. In chapter 4 and verse 15, he says, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Let me tell you what one of the big temptations is amongst conservative evangelicals. You get so tired and so frustrated and so fed up with what is happening. You see how liberalism destroys the church. You see how wickedness and sin corrupt all around that your temptation is to go monk. And what I mean by that, to shut yourself away in your own wee group. There's one way that you can make sure that sin doesn't get in, you think, almost. You know within yourself this is wrong, but it's still how we so often react. Let's exclude, 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 exclude. Let's get people who we can control, who we can deal with, situations that we can handle. Let's not have an untidy church or a messy church. Let's have a very neat church that's very sound. And then we can all relax, except, of course, it never works. Why? Because of you and because of me. Because in my heart and in your heart, there's the same sin that's in everybody else's heart. What grace does, grace says, not let's close in, but let's reach out. Now, that doesn't mean that we compromise God's Word. It doesn't mean, in fact, to, to reach out by compromising God's Word is foolish because you're not reaching out. You're giving people poison. But to have God's Word and not to reach out, I think it's blasphemy, actually. I think people who espouse sound theology and do not reach out are being blasphemous because they're giving a picture of Jesus Christ and a picture of God, which is just wrong. It's not the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that is reaching more and more people causes thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And this is where I think there's a burden for us, but also something to be thankful for. I was up in uh, Charleston yesterday at the Aspire uh, Day, and it did my heart good to see people who never come near church who are being reached by grace. That grace is expressed in lots of different ways. Most of all, it's expressed by Christians who are prepared to work and to love and to serve, to sow the seed. It's reaching more and more people. A woman came up to me with two children. Uh, do you come here? No, I've never been here before. But when, when does it meet? Tuesday night. Can my kids come? Yes. And I, kept, I was thinking of this, the grace that reaches more and more people. I think of my neighbors and your neighbors. I think of the children through there in the Sunday school just now. I think of friends and workmates and colleagues. And I think of in this past year of people who've walked into this church who've never been in church before. And I thank God for the grace of God that reaches more and more people. And then I say, Lord, it's not enough. It's just not enough. 
Because in a world that is lost and desperately lost, where people are looking for saviors all over the place, we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it reaches more and more people. And you know what you and I do? We go, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that reaches me, that forgives me, that says I'm okay. And the Lord says, no, that's not why you are given grace. It's to reach more and more people. Grace can be misused. It's the only negative about grace I found in the whole letter. I've gone through this letter several times this week, just looking at this. As God's fellow workers, in chapter 6, he says this, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. It's what I was suggesting at the beginning, a thing that chills me to my very bone, a thing that is to me more horrific than anything, when people who are professing Christians take the grace of Christ and use it as an excuse for laziness and for sin and for self-absorption and say, oh, well, Jesus loves me anyway. It doesn't matter. It's precisely because Jesus loves you that it does matter. Because you see, I don't care too much if I hurt people who I don't love. I don't know. They get hurt, so what? I I mean, I want to be seen as nice, but hey, it doesn't really matter. But when you hurt somebody who you love, somebody who is close to you, somebody who loves you, that is like an arrow in your soul. That's like an arrow in your heart. And when you understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is a far greater motivation to live a life which seeks to please Him than fear of hell. It's you don't, you, you want to live worthy of the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage all of us to be a little more serious about this and a little less blasé and a little less, oh, well, we sing the song, Jesus is Lord, and, and God will forgive me, and that's fine. I want us to be much more serious, and to realize that God's grace can be misused. It can be received in vain. Now, what does that mean? It means that you can hear God's Word. It means that God can be incredibly gracious to you. It means that you can experience many, many things, but at the end of the day, even in church, even with the Bible, even with Bible studies, even in Christian work, your main motivation is yourself. You are centered on yourself. That's not receiving the grace of Christ in a way which is beneficial. That's attempting to use the grace of Christ in a way which ultimately destroys. We urge you, says Paul. He's pleading with the people. He said, as God's fellow workers, we plead with you not to receive God's grace in vain. You know, sometimes... um, if you grow up in a home where your mother's cooking is fabulous, you know, it's just, it's just wonderful. It's like she does cordon bleu cookery for breakfast. I mean, you really, she, her cooking is just beyond. But you've grown up in that home. That's what you expect. Oh, no, not Eggs Benedict again, Mom. Come on. Do we have to have steak? Can I get it flambéed next time? You know, I mean, um, sorry, I'm speaking uh, very posh there, but you know what I mean. Some of you know what I mean. But you grow up in that kind of home. And you, you just don't appreciate what you've got. 
And perhaps till you go away and you realize that not everyone has that standard of cooking. Not everyone has that wonderful homemade lentil soup. First time you go as a student and you share a flat and your friend says, your, your flatmate says, I'll cook a meal and opens a can of Heinz and uh, baked beans and serves you. you you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I wish my mom's cooking was here. I think sometimes in the church, we receive God's grace in the sense that we are given, we get taught God's word, we have fellowship with God's people, we sing his praise, and we become so blasé and so used to it and so unappreciative of, of it that what we do is we, we end up almost resenting. We misuse it. We are to receive God's grace in, in, not in vain because everything that Jesus did was to bless us with his grace. And that's why grace brings riches. Chapter 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. There's a problem in the church, the Laodicean problem, which says, I'm rich. I don't have need of anything. Things are going well. Things are fine. I'm fine. Things are good. We can say that in our own lives. We can say that spiritually. We can say that in lots of ways. And Jesus stands at the door and he knocks and he says, I want to come in and sup with you. I want to come in and have fellowship with you. And in the culture of that time, to come in and have a meal with someone was to share with them. And we're really going, no, Lord, we're fine. We're great. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. Brilliant. Thank you for what you've done for us. Now let us go on with our lives. And there are so many churches where we think we're okay and we've shut the door on Jesus. Oh, we're a welcoming, inclusive church, but we shut the door on Jesus. Oh, we're a Bible church, but we've shut the door on Jesus because we think we're rich and have need of nothing. One of the ways to really grasp the grace of Jesus, I, this is a paradoxical thing, it's an ironic thing, it, it's, it is to realize just how poor we really are. In one sense, it's why it's much easier to bring the gospel to poor people and to broken people than it is to bring to people who are quite self-satisfied and quite strong and, and quite well off in many ways. We need to recognize our poverty before we will ever recognize the riches of God's grace. And that's wonderful even at this Christmas, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that richness, by the way, and I'm, if you come here regularly, you will know this, that riches is not saying God's going to give you loads of money. It's saying God is going to give you himself, and that God is going to give you a depth of life, and a depth of relationship, and a depth of experience that money doesn't even paint a faint shadow of. Grace brings riches. And then grace equips. Chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Memorize that verse. Stick that verse on your phone. Put that verse on your desk for the time that you feel, I just can't do this. I can't carry on. I can't continue. I'm worn out. We can't cope. Doing too much. There's so much. And maybe we are. Maybe we're doing too much in our own strength. Maybe we're exhausting ourselves thinking that we're superwoman or superman. But I'll tell you this. 
I really, really, really don't want to hear from the church at all. Let's cut back. Let's stop. Let's retreat. Let's withdraw. Let's hold on until Jesus comes. Jesus told us not to hold on till he comes, but to get out till he comes. He is coming. And we are able to abound in every good work. I think it's wonderful that we prayed for Crawford and for Hugh in Peru and Haiti, the good work that they are doing and abounding in that work. I think it's wonderful that Christians Against Poverty is based in this building and the work that's done there, but it's only scraping the surface. The Aspire Project, the same thing, the children's work. I wonder if any of the Sunday school teachers, and I wonder if any of us have thought, you know, too many children, that's enough. We haven't got enough room. I know the deacon's court discussed this. I say this to the deacon's court. I don't care. If you have to get a bigger building, you have to get a bigger building. It's about people. We abound in every good work because of God's grace, because God equips. He equips us for what we need to do, to sing and to praise and to serve and to, to help the poor and to witness and to preach and to love and care for one another. Grace equips. He's able to make all grace abound to you. When you say, I can't do this, when you say, we can't do this, you're in the right place to say, well, God can, and God equips. And grace causes prayer. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. In that context, in that verse, Paul is saying that other believers will see what God has done in your life, and they will just, their hearts will be Uh, delighted at being able to praise. I would suggest that we haven't grasped grace enough because the evidence for that for me is because we don't pray enough. We don't meet in prayer and thank God for other people. I've been reading um, this past week Tim Keller's book on prayer, and it's for me, it's stunning. It's the best book I've ever read on prayer. And apart from anything else, it convicts me, but not in a bad way, in a good way. I just think, Lord, how ungrateful am I? I? Should be thankful for the people that are in the church, thankful for all that you've done and are doing. Grace causes us to pray, and then grace is sufficient. Paul, in the midst of enormous difficulty, enormous trouble, probably physical, certainly spiritual, overwhelming, enough to destroy him, says this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, here is great news for you. If you are here this morning and you're thinking, I am just so weak. I can't, I can't cope. I can't do this. And God says, but I can. My grace is sufficient for you. And here's a problem for you if you're saying, I'm okay, I can deal with this, I can handle this, I can cope, let me fix this, let me sort it. And God says, no, you can't. 
You can't fix it. You can't do a single thing without me. Self-sufficiency versus God-sufficiency. Grace is sufficient. Well, he goes on, and I'm not going to take as long on these two, just mention the, the love of God. The love is the basis of grace. God is love, and the grace of Christ flows from the love of God. Now, the, the thing I really want to say about this, and Sinclair has been mentioning this in the evening services, and it's been so worth coming to hear this on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter 5, he gives us a very simple summary, summary that I actually remembered, but I wrote it down in case I forgot and embarrassed myself. Chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount is about fulfillment. Chapter 7 is about judgment, and chapter 6 is about the Heavenly Father because the Jewish people did not have a grasp or this concept, really, of God as the Heavenly Father who loves us. And what I would say about this, for me, is the extraordinary thing. For a lot of us, the idea that anyone actually loves us is hard to believe. We find it because difficult because we think they might like us for a while or appreciate us because of who we are. We show off our best side to them and they appreciate that. But that's often when we're arrogant and ignorant. Arrogant about ourselves and ignorant about ourselves. Once we know ourselves better, once we stumble and fall, we find it really hard to believe that people will even like us. But love us for ourselves? Love us not because of what we give. Love us not because of what we do for them. Love us not because of how we look or whatever. But love us because of who we are? We find that really difficult. And especially when that person is somebody who we really admire and someone who we think is far better than us. You? You, you love me? Nah, nah, I don't believe that. Well, if that's how it works with human relationships, imagine what it's like when it comes to God. That blows your mind. And if it doesn't blow your mind, I would suggest that you don't know who you are and you don't know who God is. How can God love me? How is, how is that possible? Not in any sane world, not in any just world. How is that possible? Well, it's not possible because of how great we are. It's possible because he is love. It's possible because he chooses to do so. And how do we know that? Again, early in this letter, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, it's the love of Christ that compels us. It's the grace of Christ flowing from the love of God that works in us. And that's an extraordinary thing. Again, people, if people cheapen God's grace, they cheapen God's love. 
They put their hands in their pockets, metaphorically speaking, go, yeah, of course God loves me. God is love. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I know that Jesus loves me. I'll sing about Jesus loves me. I'll talk about Jesus loves me. And then do you know what you do? You think about the things that annoy you. You think about the things that are upsetting you. You think about the things that are worrying you. You think about the things that are really important to you, which goes to show you that the love of God and the love of Jesus is not really that important. It's a cliche. It's a blasé kind of, yeah, 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 Jesus loves me, that's fine. Do you know, many waters, many rivers cannot quench love. You could be in a relationship where you lose your job, where things are not going so well in terms of your health, where there are lots of hassles in terms of your friendships, where in your extended family there are all kinds of troubles. But if you know that your partner really loves you, it sustains you through that. Or it may be a child, it may be a parent, it may be a particular friendship that you have. The love of God goes way, way, way beyond the highest and greatest and deepest love that you could know in this life. May the love of God, he says, earlier in verse 11, he says, the God of love and peace will be with you. Let me suggest what I think we need here and what I think you need. I think that some of you have become stale. I think that your love of God or your experience of God's love for you was real and was genuine. But you remember it in the same way that you remember your wedding day. It was a great day. You've got the tokens of it. You've got the pictures. You've got the video. But your marriage maybe has gone stale. You're looking back. You need something more now. And in the same way, I think there are many Christians, we are genuine believers, we trust Jesus, we've given our hearts, we've been born again, but we've kind of fallen asleep. We've kind of got a stunted spiritual growth. We've let the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, come in and choke any fruitfulness that we may have had. And our love of God is something or our experience of the love of God, to be more accurate, is something that's in the dim and distant past that we have a vague memory of, a vague kind of spiritual photo in our head that we bring out every now and then, that we get glimpses of every now and then, and we go, oh, yeah, where's the love that first I had when first I knew the Lord? And I suspect that for many of us here, we need fresh experiences and fresh infusions of the love of God. When did you last cry for joy because Jesus loves you? It's a serious question. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Earlier he'd said this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit as our counselor. The Spirit is the one who takes the Word of God and applies it to our hearts. The Spirit who fills us with His fruit and gives us His gifts. The Spirit who causes us to love people that we don't even like. The Spirit who binds us together in the love of Christ. And this is where we get this so wrong as well. Why do Christians think they can have fellowship with unbelievers? Where did you get that nonsense from? That will poison and destroy the fellowship that you have. You love non-believers. You go out and reach non-believers. But to be in a church where non-believers are leaders, to, I, I, that is incomprehensible in New Testament terms. Oh, well, I'm showing love and I'm being gracious. No, you're not. You've been a coward. You're not showing love and being gracious at all. You're being a coward and you're refusing to stand up for the Word of God and you're not believing that the triune God is sufficient for you. You think you need that church, that denomination. You don't. You need God and you need His church. So we don't have fellowship with unbelievers in the church. We love unbelievers. We reach out to unbelievers. We don't condemn unbelievers. But people who come into the church and profess to be believers and then deny Jesus Christ, those we deal with because that is wrong. It is so wrong. But here's another problem. Because I think most people in this church will say, yeah, we're right with that. We're not them. We don't do that. We don't do fellowship with unbelievers. Yeah, but sometimes we go the other way. Sometimes we have fellowship with people who are just like us. They're believers. They fit in our group. I, this is one of the things, and I'll be honest about this. This is one of the things I find really difficult. When a church splits and a group of people leave a church, you know what their innate tendency is to do is to stay together as a group and not join with other believers. Why? Because they're scared because they think this is our community. These are our people. These are the ones we know. No, this is not your community and this is not your people. The community of the church is the community of Jesus Christ. And I will have fellowship with people in any church who love God, who love Jesus, and who honor His Word. And we should be prepared to have that as well. Please don't try and create churches, and please let us not do this here. Let's not try and create a church here which is for people like us, people who, who fit with what we want and how we think. Because if you do that, then what will happen is you will create a, a mono-ethnic, mono-cultural, mono-spiritual cultural church which will not reach people. The Spirit gives us fellowship with the most unlikely people. It's just incredible. I had a, a woman phone me yesterday. Now, I was, uh, this is too much information, but I was in the bath and nearly got my toes stuck with a eureka moment because I was a bit... I was a bit thinking about things in my head and so on. And this woman phoned me up, and it was just completely out of the blue. And she said, where is your church? That was her opening line. She said, I would like to come to it. I said, okay. And by the way, if you're here, welcome. Um, uh, I would like to come to it. So I said, oh, well, yes, sure. What do you look for in a church? She said, I don't know. I don't, what kind of church are you? Presbyterian. Obviously, from the silence on the end of the phone, that meant nothing. So I said, okay, um, we're a church that teaches the Bible, and we want to tell people about Jesus, 
And, you know, everyone is welcome. If, you, if you're a Christian, you're welcome as a Christian sister. If you're not a Christian, want you to become one. And we talked for quite a while about different things. And then what got me at the end of the phone call, this lady who I've never, ever met, she said, you know, I'm coming to work in Dundee and I'm just looking for a church. And she said, I am just so excited now about coming to Dundee. I'm so excited about having fellowship. And you know this, so was I. I've never met her. And yet, for me, that is the wonderful thing about God's people. That we're always trying to hold on to relationships that we've had from the past. And God's always saying, oh, I'm bringing you more. I'm bringing you more. Just keep it coming. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful thing. Okay, I'm going to finish there with this. Please take this prayer, this benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And can I suggest this? Why not for the rest of this week or even the rest of this year, every single day, meditate on this prayer? Just stop and think, what does the grace of Jesus mean? What does the love of God mean for me in my life and for the church? What does the fellowship of the Holy Spirit mean? And you stop and you think about what it means. You give thanks to God for what it is. You confess your sin where you have gone against these things and relied on yourself. And you pray that this would be in your life and in the lives of your families and friends. We don't know what happened at Corinth. There's a letter called First Clement. Uh, Paul may have returned. We don't know. But there's a letter called First Clement, which is not a New Testament letter, but it's a church letter written about 40 years after this was written. And from that letter, we gather that there was still dissension and anarchy and trouble in the church. You know the myth that we all buy into. The early church was kind of perfect. If only we, we could get back to it. No. We are a mess and we are in trouble. Please recognize that. We are a mess and we are in trouble. This church, I'm not talking about churches in general, this church, we are a mess and we are in trouble. Why? Because we are sinners. And you have to have that kind of Homer Simpson moment where you go, Duh, of course, of course. And that's why this blessing is exactly what we need. The, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit being with us all. So, stop playing, stop pretending, stop being a hypocrite. Get to grips with your sin and your need of God. Stop playing at Christianity. Lay hold of the one who reaches out to lay hold of you. And as you experience his grace, his love, Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.